welcome to this week's Boundless Book Club. You are here with Ahlam, Annabelle, and me, Andrea. And on a normal day, you would find us in the office at the Emirates Literature Foundation in the beautiful historical Shindaga area of Dubai. Working from home has made us appreciate our unique setting more than ever. And it's made us think about the types of books that are so saturated by their unique settings that they really couldn't take place anywhere else. So the type of stories that make us feel the, the wind in our hair or where we can smell the wood burning while our eyes water from the smoke. So today we are going to be putting fiction in its place. It was really fun looking at books and trying to come up with something to talk about today because there are so many great books that just really bring the setting to life in a way that it's like being there in person, mm -hmm. which obviously we are missing now. The only way we can really travel at the moment is, is through literature. So I think it was only a matter of time before one of our episodes was about that in some way, shape or form. But when I think about geography and its relationship with fiction, I often think about why certain places have an impact on particular genres. And one of the first things that came to mind, I think for a lot of us is Scandi Noir or Nordic Noir. And I just, I wondered if you could shed some light on why that is and why those two have become so associated. Given that you're our Scandinavian representative here today. <laughs> yeah, our resident Scandi. <laughs> okay, so yes, really great question, Annabelle. I think Scandi Noir, it surprised me that it became such a massive global phenomenon, but it must resonate with people. And for me, so I was quite keen to dive into it today for this episode, because I obviously have that Scandi Noir, not just in my blood, but in my bones, which is where you feel the chill when you've been cold for many, many years. So I think unique combination of cold and dark for such a long time has a serious impact on the human psyche. We, we know this, people get depressed when they don't see the sun for a long period of time. And in Scandinavia, we have a quite a, well, in Sweden, it's quite a big country with not that many people outside of the capital city. So if you go to the north, you could be driving for hours without seeing people. So I think that does something to people. And when they then sit down to write something that's coming from their imagination, that's coming from deep within them, I think that's what you get. You get these books that I've got stacked up here. So what kind of books tell us? I've got one of the books that I think kicked it off. Actually, I think Henning Mankell probably kicked it off. And I don't know if you've watched the, that TV show with Kenneth Branagh, The Wallander. Oh, so beautiful. It's just the settings and the light and the way it was shot was just absolutely stunning. And then there were some murders and things, but, but it was beautiful. So I really recommend watching that. I don't actually recommend reading his books that much, but I know lots of other people do. So he probably wouldn't mind if I said that because he has enough people who love him around the world. Especially when it comes to writers that a lot of people find popular. It is interesting to find people who are like, actually doesn't really resonate with me. So what is it about his books that you think maybe come across better on screen? Well, I think the fact that when it was filmed, it was so beautifully done. That really, that's really nice to look at. And I've only read one of his books and I read it in Swedish and it was just quite, it's probably not his best, but it was a bit boring. And I think if you're looking at something very, very beautiful, you can take a little bit of boring. What's the title in Swedish and what does it mean in English? So the title is Mördare utan ansikte. And that means the murderer without a face. 
It sounded so much better in Swedish as well. I love how when when like when someone speaks a different language, they sound like a completely different person. <laughs> I felt like Andrea was like two different people <laughs> right there. But then also, I think it could also be that reading this in Swedish makes it feel a bit more boring because I grew up there and it's a place I'm from and and I'm used to reading in English. So I associate all the great works of literature that I've read are read in English. So I don't know if that has something to do with it. Right. So should I just do a little very, very quick pit stop tour of some Scandi Noir? Yes, please. So the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is one of the biggest selling books of possibly this century. Huge. They even have in Stockholm, they have walking tours of Stockholm that follow the path of this book. Um, the plot is so um, convoluted that I couldn't actually tell you what it's about. There are crimes that are old, there are new, there are problematic relationships. There are some of the most gruesome graphic descriptions of violence that I've read, but it's like being on a roller coaster. So if you just close your eyes for a few seconds, it'll be over. So that's fine. When you're on a book of 500 plus pages, you can just skip the very uncomfortable bits if you're a bit like me and don't enjoy that. I mean, it's a really great read for the, the madness of the plot and for Scandi Noir. And after you've read that, you might be interested in Lars Kepler, the hypnotist, which actually is the pen name for a married couple. And they chose the name Lars Kepler. Lars was chosen because they were fans of Stieg Larsson. Interesting fact. And another interesting fact about Lars Kepler is that it's a husband and wife team who have literally the same name, their real names. She is called Alexandra Andoril. I don't know how to pronounce their surname. And he is called Alexander Andoril. So that's kind of fun. This book has sold 15 million copies and translated into 40 different languages. Huge. It's about a, um, a really horrible situation with a child who is in hospital with all sorts of injuries who's been witness to his family being murdered and they bring in a hypnotist to help him recover the memories and find out who's done it and it's very very difficult to read if you don't have a strong stomach for this sort of thing but it's a pulse pounding debut that's already a smash says the financial times then you have camilla leckberg who is a again a huge huge scandi noir author she has written 10 novels i think all set in a small town in sweden where it seems to be snowing all the time possibly also icy most of the time it's dark and i think that kind of i think that has to happen i don't imagine i can't imagine a scandinavian noir novel not being set in the cold I have to say, this is like a completely new area of literature for me. Like I haven't read any of these books, but I'm also, I don't feel drawn to reading something that's dark uh, like that and, and inspired by just cold, dark environments. So I know they're really, really popular, but I just, I don't understand the, the drive. Annabelle, do you read Scandi Noir books? No, I read the Icelandic author, Ursa Sigurdardotter. I read one of her books. It was brilliant. I read it from start to finish. I couldn't get enough of it, but I was a little bit nauseous halfway through. <laughs> What's it called? I read The Legacy by Ursa Sigurdardotter. The Legacy. Okay. I feel like that she has that in common with Joe Nespo as well. The violence in his novels is so graphic and it's so 
so upsetting that it's really hard to read even though they're really great novels. I would never read these if I was in Scandinavia in the winter. It'd be too uncomfortable. Yeah, I can see that. Before we did this podcast, I was interested in the whole Scandinoir thing and I did a bit of research and I found an interesting comment about correlation between the geography and like the landscape and the nature of these crime stories compared to say UK and US crime fiction on screen or on the page. Alison Graham of the Radio Times said that in the UK and US you often find that characters always have to learn lessons or pay the price of their misdeeds, not in Nordic Noir. Bad people often get away with bad things and nice people are killed off. I think there are many exceptions to that rule. They definitely don't give their characters as many breaks, I don't think. Yeah, I feel like there's a the murder mystery genre in the UK is a lot um, more comforting. There's always a stop for sort of a cup of tea and a crumpet and... There are some murders, but they're they're much gentler somehow. Yeah, because you've got your standard crime fiction, but then in particularly in the UK, you've got like a whole category of cozy crime. Like it's called cozy crime. Yeah. Which sounds <laughs> so strange, but it's the thing. It's midsummer murders. And it's lovely. It's very comforting. Just going back to what you said earlier about reading in in English uh, all of most of your literary greats that you've read growing up and then going back to how that makes you view the books that you've read in Swedish, I feel like I have the opposite experience. Like every Arab in, who grew up in Dubai and went to private school, uh, English is sort of the language that we use more frequently than Arabic. And a lot of the books that I've always read have also been in, in English. But when I do read an Arabic, Arabic novel, especially the classics, especially, you know, some of the award-winning new authors, I just find the language to be so incredibly beautiful. And I just regret like my Arabic not being much stronger in school and not being sort of more connected to Arabic literature earlier on in my life because it's more relatable to me as an Arab. A lot of the the way that Arabs express emotion or or the experience or the culture or and just the richness of language, which I feel sometimes when I'm writing, I feel in Arabic and I think in Arabic, but I write in English because that's sort of what I've learned. And I feel like it's such an unfortunate disconnect that I don't know how to <laughs> get through or fix. But maybe, maybe with time, you know, on the subject of your environment affecting literature, a lot of the new Arabic literature that's come out in the past few years are very much related to war situations, war zones, and being misplaced and refugee status and and things along those lines. And I, I, you know, there was an Arab author that I was talking to at, at the festival last year and sort of we were discussing why is are all of these books that are shortlisted for the uh, IPAF uh, here or, or some of the awards or a lot of the literature that comes out of the Arab world recently all associated with war and and tragedy in that way. He's like, because that is the state of the Arab world right now. And uh, artists or writers find it very difficult to write about anything else when this is the struggle of sort of our people and I, I it completely made sense uh, but that's not the subject of what I'm going to talk about I'm I'm going to go 
way back to the influence of Arabs and Islamic rule uh, on Spanish literature, going back all the way to, you know, when the uh, Islamic empires had taken over the North African and south of Spain area, so Andalus or Andalusia. There's lots of effects, but I think what, what I wanted to choose for today is one very iconic piece of literature. So Cervantes's Don Quixote, which was considered the first modern novel and a book that is known to be one of the most influential works of fiction ever written. And it's sort of, you know, paved the way for uh, a lot of European literature after that and world lit literature as well. So Cervantes wrote this about 113 or 115 years after the Islamic rule. But what's important to note is that he was imprisoned by the Berberi people of North Africa, so in the prisons of Algiers. And when he was imprisoned there, that's been noted that that's when the story of Don Quixote came to him. And he says often in the book that actually I'm not the narrator of, I'm not the writer of Don Quixote. And there's a character, Sidi Hamet Benengeli. I don't know if I'm, I'm pronouncing it right, but Sidi Hamet comes up in in the book in, in the beginning of the ninth chapter. So he says, I found uh, the Arabic manuscript called The History of Don Quixote of La Mancha, written by Sidi Hamet Benengali, an Arabian historian. So he talks about finding these manuscripts. And, and if, if you look at the link between the story of this chivalrous knight who, who goes out and finding, you know, fighting injustices of every day. There's a lot of similarities with the story of Antar, the sort of rip-lip, poor, half-breed uh, man who, who is a knight, goes on to become a knight of knights, and he's going out to fight for the love of Abla, which is also his cousin. But, you know, there's a, there's a huge theme of chivalry there. And these are sort of stories derived also from the tales of Arabian Nights, because when, when you put the timeline together, you look at... Okay, well, Arabian Nights was popularized in Europe sort of in the 18th century, but actually it's been said that the original manuscripts were discovered earlier on during the golden age of when the, the Muslims were in Spain. And so you can see a lot of themes that carry through. One thing that I loved when I was researching for this, Cervantes himself viewed the Arabs not as, you know, he didn't really put them in high regard. He sort of looked at them as politically not in a, not in a good way. He looked at them as hiding their identities within Spanish culture. And, and he, but I love what Manguel said in his, in his article. He says, whoever Cervantes was and whatever he might have thought about Spain and its politics ultimately matters little. More important was the fact that for the reader of Don Quixote today, the overwhelming presence of Sidi Hamet and the moving glimpses of a banished people tells us that a rejected culture will not be easily silenced, that absence in history is as solid as presence, and that literature is often wiser than even the wisest of its practitioners. And I love that that even though the Arabs had long left Spain and they're no longer there, you know, that effect that they had on the Spanish language and the culture and the rule that they had for several generations in Spain has its echo still today in Spanish literature and Spanish work. 
And and I think going back all the way until recent history, you know, that, that echo of, of that magical realism that comes from Arabian Nights and Arabic literature is still echoed up until Gabriel Garcia Marquez and many, many other authors. But I, I picked out those two because obviously they're very, very iconic. And I know, Andrea, 100 Years of Solitude was your, your favorite piece of literature, you were saying. It's really hard to say what your favorite book is, but that would always feature in the top 10, no matter what. It's just so much more than what the title implies, which is a pretty, it's a pretty boring title, isn't it? And it's so far from boring. I don't know the one that you've got in your hand, though. So this is one that I've, I've had for a while, and I, I picked it up last week and started to read it. So it's a story of a character that dies uh, in a small town in Spain. And this is sort of going back to see the events that led to his death. And he's a young 21-year-old, uh, you know, good-looking, good family, Spanish uh, guy. So there's a big wedding that happens at the start of the book. And this wedding is just, you know, huge. What it must have cost was as unheard of in that little town. And everybody was, has been talking about it for months. And then it happens. And then on the night of the wedding, the groom finds out that his, his bride was not a virgin. And she, she had been with the young man that I was telling you in the beginning. So now the twin brothers of the bride are finding him to kill him because it's the honor of their family. This is a telenovela. It is a telenovela, but it's also very Arab. <laughs> so, and just, you know, the, I guess it's, I don't know, it, it must be like cultures around the world who obviously view the honor related to that in, in that way as well, but certainly Arabs do. But it's more the sentence structure and the way that the narration of Gabriel Marquis is that is similar to how the tales of Arabian Nights are told. And that's what I think it's, is very noticed when uh, with literary criticism. And it makes sense to me that a lot of Latin American works and, and Spanish literature has been translated into Arabic because it feels like a natural transition. Do you think there's something in the Latin novels having such a strong family culture if you read a hundred years of solitude it's all about this this family right and then the well these families that then become so intertwined that the baby's born with a pig's tail which is yeah. one of my favorite bits of literature <laughs> yeah. ever um i think the the original uh, patriarch of the family is married to his cousin right so that's the beginning of of it all yeah there are quite a few cousins yeah. i think um, but yeah, do you, do you think it's that strong focus on family that, that brings them together and makes them resonate halfway across the world? Yeah, I think so. I think it's that, but there's a lot more of that sort of deeply rooted narrative and mentality that's come from uh, Islamic rule uh, and their language as well. I've, I, I was looking online and there's close to a thousand words that are similar or identical to Arabic words. That's a lot. That's a huge synergy. So even if it's not sort of inspired by Arabic or Islamic ways, even the fact that the language holds so much of Arabian influence, it just is, even if they're not trying to make it so. It's amazing. So I'm learning Arabic on Duolingo at the moment. Is naranja orange in Arabic? No, it's burtaqal. Pantalon is pretty much the same. Pantalon is, yeah, pantalon. It is. 
Annabelle, what have you got? Before I move on to mine, because you mentioned uh, Garcia Marquez. And when you talk about Garcia Marquez, you're obviously talking a lot, like you said, about magical realism, about strange things happening in whether it's the stories I read. I read um, Los Funerales de la Mama Grande, Big Mama's Funeral. Did you read them in Spanish? Yeah. Oh, awesome. And you can imagine still learning the language and then reading magical realism for my A-level was a little bit kind of like, well, you are going to learn the most difficult way possible. This will be confusing. <laughs> Did you have to go, is this what I think it is? Every couple of pages. So, so that's the thing. And that's why magical realism is so interesting to me because I came at it from a background of understanding what was happening in my books where the fantasy was fantasy and the reality was reality. So reading it as kind of a foreign language became very confusing to me. And I remember reading the Garcia Marquez short stories and uh, Isabel Allende's Eva Luna. Now, interestingly, going back to your comment about Arabian Nights, Eva Luna is a story about a woman called Eva Luna and it's set from the 1950s to the 1980s in a Latin American country that is unspecified and you see the same thing happening with Garcia Marquez as well where everything happens in the town of Macondo and it's an unspecified city it's made up but it has a lot of characteristics of things that will be known and familiar to anybody living in Latin America and in Eva Luna what happens is the character has this gift for storytelling so the whole book is basically her story interwoven with her telling you more stories and she influences the people in her life and things happen because of the stories that she tells and that book is actually about a modern day Scheherazade so you've got Isabel Allende referencing Arabian Nights in her story as well so the the ones that I've got to talk about Comic books and the city of New York is the putting fiction in its place topic that I want to start with. And it's because I think it's interesting to look at the origin story of a genre that is so known for its origin stories. And it doesn't matter whether you're a fan of comic books or not, you will have experienced or absorbed the world of comic books and their superheroes in some way, shape or form if you've been to the cinema in the last century. So... 1930s New York is a really key date. It's the Great Depression. It's a terrible time. Everything's pretty bleak. Homelessness is on the rise. You've also got unemployment. Everyone's hungry. A third of the city, just for context, a third of the city's social service organizations were closed. So the number of people that you could turn to if you were struggling, minimal. The city also had abandonment issues, which I think is something that you see come up in many comic books and origin stories of various superheroes. Husbands and fathers abandoning women and children rose by 134% during the Great Depression. So this atmosphere and intense poverty meant that pulp fiction became incredibly popular. And one of those pulp stories were these adventure magazines that were made for a male audience and they cost a few cents at a time and that is where comic books came from so the people who worked on those ended up producing comic books now spider-man for example is set in new york city superman's metropolis is clearly based on new york city now batman was originally supposed to be set in new york city which then became gotham but if you look at Gotham, what is the first city that you think of? It's essentially New York City. It's a version of it. And those early comic book issues were about the issues of 
those New York City dwellers at the time. Now, if I was going to recommend a book alongside this, I have to recommend a book that Aidan recommended to me, Aidan Lake, which was written in 2000 by Michael Chabon. It won the Pulitzer Prize and it's called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And I haven't read it yet, but it sounds phenomenal. It's set in New York in 1939. So it's a great way to experience a couple of the things that I've been talking about and the formation of that genre. It's basically set during New York's golden age of of comic books and it's about imagination storytelling the american dream and it's about an escape artist and a budding magician and his cousin who decide to make a comic book of their own and that's what i will recommend if you're interested in that geographical genre connection i'm not recommending these books specifically but it is a way of talking about a genre that i find incredibly interesting because of how wide-ranging it is and how often we consume the pop culture of it without realizing what it's connected to. One of them is Dracula, one of my favorite books of all time. And the other is Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. So I'm also gonna reference something called the Sookie Stackhouse novels, the Southern Vampire Mysteries. (gasps) I love it. I'm gonna be talking to you about American Gothic fiction, which is something that we have all consumed at one point in time, if any of us have read To Kill a Mockingbird. And that surprised me. And I'm gonna start with gothic fiction to give you some context in general. So a lot of people credit The Castle of Otranto in 1764, written by Horace Walpole as kind of the origins of gothic fiction. Your spooky castle, Dracula, that sort of vibe. And it's really interesting when you start looking at gothic fiction and you trace it later to the 20th century when it starts to move to the US, how things get slightly different. And there's kind of a US versus UK or European gothic fiction thing going on. And one of the main things that you'll notice is that you still have, in all gothic fiction, something supernatural and something grotesque. Horror is communicated in kind of a supernatural or otherly way. In Dracula, Frankenstein, Wuthering Heights, landscape is a really big part of that. The darkness in the story is often reflected in the darkness of the surroundings. We were talking about Scandinoir earlier, so it's a little bit like that. When you move to American Gothic or Southern Gothic, you end up with something that I think is actually more disconcerting because the landscape doesn't reflect the darkness of the story at all. So in a way, because it is so sunny and so bright and genteel on the surface, the fact that you've got these undercurrents of darkness actually make it feel even more horrific. And in American Gothic fiction as well, it's got a lot of racial tension at the heart of it. There's a dark, violent, racist past that comes through a lot of American Gothic fiction. And the supernatural, like we were talking earlier about magical realism, fantasy and magical realism are on their spectrum where you're using the other to talk about things that are far too brutal in reality. And I find it fascinating that you can basically connect Dracula with True Blood. And you can also connect it with what I think is modern American Gothic and cinema, which is Get Out. If anybody's seen Get Out, that is racial tension plus the supernatural. There's even elements of vampire fiction in terms of your soul and losing your soul. And so I would recommend that you look at something like Northanger Abbey, which Jane Austen wrote as a parody of gothic fiction that was really popular at the time because you don't necessarily have to know all of this to enjoy any of these stories but this is one in particular that becomes far more interesting 
when you know the background of what she's making fun of. And I'd also recommend that you read Dracula before you read the Sookie Stackhouse novels because it is very interesting to see how things progress from the 19th century in London to modern day Louisiana and how at its heart those themes are still the same themes across continents and across generations. Do you do you actually, have you seen any True Blood? Or do you have any idea what we're talking about, Alam? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> so so in a, in a nutshell basically true blood or the the southern vampire mysteries the the books they're about modern day vampires in louisiana and what happens is vampires have been around for centuries but they've decided to come out of the closet and announce that they're real there are a faction of vampires that are happy to be part of society and make that work by consuming blood that is kind of packaged and bottled safely for them it's synthesized so that's that's why they came out because they're like hey we're here but we're not dangerous we can drink this this alco pop that's effectively manufactured blood we're not going to eat you Ahram. <laughs> which is what was it what's that other show there was a, there's a teenage show with the vampires as well they do a similar thing i feel like there are many because if you say teenage vampire show like you could be referring to so many <laughs> As you can tell, it's not really a genre of my interest. <laughs> the one thing I wanted to end on with this in our conversation about like fiction and gothic and yeah. why it's relevant in now, there's an author and art historian called Noah Charney, and he said that the reason American Gothic works so well is that the themes are grotesque, the characters too, inside and off and out, delusional, ignorant, self-righteous, evangelical, broken. And part of what breaks them, part of what makes America one of the scariest places in the world, is an explosive cocktail of a rage born of promises unfulfilled, a sense of entitlement denied, and the search for some other to blame. Um, but I think it's that promises unfulfilled, that American dream, that also comes up in comic books, and its relationship with fantasy. Um, and you even see it in TV shows like Breaking Bad, where there aren't any vampires or any supernatural element. Is it safe to say that we made the connection first on the Boundless Book Club? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Breaking. But perhaps perhaps I'm the first person to also mention the fact that there is another connection to gothic fiction in that one of the adverts for the show or one of the episodes includes Brian Cranston reciting Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. And Percy Bysshe Shelley's wife was obviously Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. Interesting. Fun fact, I didn't need to know, Annabelle. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> you can share your opinion. Let us know about a book that not only tells you something about a place, but makes you feel it in your bones. Or maybe you disagree with the selection. Let us know by emailing us on comms at emirateslitchfest.com. Or you can send us a message on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you, and if you're watching this rather than listening, you'll know that we're on YouTube too. And if you're listening to audio only, don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Balanced Book Club, putting fiction in its place.